women making waves. But it is, it's, it's lonely when you don't know what you're going to cook that night. Lonely. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. I wonder what you're like as a cook, actually. Because hmm. I think the last time I was at your house, it was, it was catered. <laughs> Yes, it was. But it I don't get answered. So, you <laughs> yes, know, you weren't handing out the homemade scones, were you? There were that, a lot of people there, to be fair. No, no. The funniest thing is we bought these chocolate brownies in a shop, but we put them on a plate and then we served them. <laughs> people were asking us what the recipe was mm. and it got to such a big lie that I couldn't get out <laughs> and say that actually it wasn't me that cooked them. It was so <laughs> somebody else but I got to that moment where some of our guests were saying oh these are fantastic can I have the recipe and with that I did not have the guts to say actually they're not mine I went oh yes of course I'll go and find them for you but I couldn't find the recipe because you could make, make up them. a recipe fast enough you mean no no <laughs> no but you love cooking though Linda don't you so that's only, it's only at times you see mm. I'm not I'm not exactly dishing up fabulous homemade meals the whole time. I do make soup though quite a lot in the winter and yeah. I, you know, just pop things in, in slow cooker in the morning. I mean this morning I did that. You know I, I, I popped in some frozen vegetables mixed veg, lentils and some boiling water and a stock cube, put the lid on, walked away ready by lunchtime. Oh, you see that is and it was delish as well. That is a cool way to do things. When you can it get is. when you can make something like that and it doesn't take forever no in the effort. kitchen. That yeah. is my kind That's of a good cooking. One. Really yeah. lovely outcome zero effort or next to yeah. zero effort I'm afraid yeah. that's that, that's me um, I did once have a dinner party though where I invited people at you my just had crowd. once just once, once well Linda. I think this this rather put me off because um, <laughs> I invited everybody from work and I'd been talking about this red dragon pie which was a vegetarian pie that I made from a dookie beans so anyway they said oh what? you have to have us round and give us this red dragon pie so I made my red dragon pie and then they all came round and I I suddenly thought, oh, there's six of them. And I've only made just my normal red dragon pie that I would make for two. <laughs> so, so I, you I was divided. Meanly, yes. I, I took meanly. Hardly, any, hardly, I took about a teaspoon myself <laughs> just so they knew it wasn't poisoned. And then I kind of divided it amongst the six of them. So, and there was a little bit of salad, but there's only a little bit of salad as well. Do, 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 do you think behind behind your back they might have called you something like Scrooge? Back. It wasn't behind my back. That was the problem. They all looked at their plates and went, is that it? And then all started talking about chip shops on the way home. Did you not realise when you were no. when you brought the stuff over? So you didn't realise that there were five people no, or I rather did, I realised when it came to dishing it up, but it hadn't really occurred to me up until then. <laughs> I was young. And I was young. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. Early All right. 20s. And it was Big the first excuse. Time, first time I'd had a bunch of people over, but it was <laughs> they, they were they were harsh. Were they impressed with what they could taste, even if it was a taste of meal? Oh yes, I think that made it worse. Because <laughs> <laughs> they enjoyed it. Oh really, no. That mouthful was really tasty. Pity that there wasn't a second one, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got some good guests coming up today who wouldn't do that. They certainly wouldn't. <laughs> no. So we're meeting today Louise Palmer Masterton, who is the CEO 
of Stem and Glory. Stem and Glory is a fantastic vegan restaurant. They're very well known in Cambridge, but they've now expanded to London. And I think they're going to do really, really well. Fabulous restaurant. You've been to this restaurant, haven't mm, you, Linda? I have. But we're so looking forward to talking to Louise. And then, of course, just to sort of accompany your taste buds and your thoughts about eating, wherever you're going to eat, who's next on the guest list, Linda? Well, we've got Gabby Reniero and Annabelle Jones, who run Bubbly Bandits, which is a wine company. Great name. When you organised this uh, little get-together with Gabby and Annabelle, I was just in seventh heaven. The thought of talking about wine for a while was just amazing. <laughs> what could be better? What could be better? You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. If you like vegan food, you'll have heard of Stem and Glory. Even if you're not vegan, it's a really interesting place to go and eat. Everything is made from non-animal product. When you order oysters, it's the mushroom variety you can look forward to and sticky toffee pudding and custard as well, all beautifully cooked and presented. And the business was a finalist in the Heroes of Net Zero at the COP26 award. We're delighted to be talking to the founder of STEM and Glory today, Louise Palmer Masterton. And I can't wait to hear more about how this fantastic restaurant came about. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Lou. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. We're really, really looking forward to hearing more about you. I looked at your LinkedIn page and I saw that you were founder of STEM and Glory, which, which I knew. You founded CAM Yoga in 2003. And then I spotted that you went to City University and you did applied physics, of all things. <laughs> That's a bit of a jump. Or is it? So <laughs> let's go back to when you were younger. What did you want to do for a living when you left the school? Good question. I, I think I had absolutely no idea, really. I mean, I went to a very academic school and it was a boarding school as well. So I was at boarding school from the age of 11 to 18. And whilst that was a kind of very good experience on many levels, they weren't very good with the careers advice. You know, it wasn't really existing in the real world. So. I was good at science, it was an all girls school and if you were good at science and maths at girls school you were pushed into it to sort of, you know, making waves for, for women in science. Mm, so mm -hmm. that's pretty much how it went. I did love physics more than anything else but no one mentioned to me that applied physics was not pure physics. <laughs> so I ended up like a square peg in a round hole really because what I really loved was creative stuff like English. You know, I, I think I am a creative person but because I was good at science I was pushed into that. and. Yeah. So that started that whole thing. I did get back into university later on, into Cambridge University, actually. And that was to study social and political science, which is kind of much more what I'm interested in these days. Didn't end up going for another long set of reasons, which was mainly to do with family. I was fell pregnant with my second child. But anyway, so, yeah, mm. I, don't, I don't think careers advice existed in the old days <laughs> like it does like it does now. I think yeah. you've got lots of good examples of lots of different things that you can do with your life and also the idea that you choose something when you're young and you stick with it for the rest of life, I hopefully it's been completely abandoned now because, yeah. you know, I've done many things in my life, all of them rewarding in different ways. And within one life, you can have many lives, really. Do you have brothers and sisters? Were they as equally as specialists in art as you? Well, I have two brothers, actually. I have one older and one younger brother. 
No, they were completely different from me. <laughs> Neither of them are academic at all. They've both done very well in their lives in different ways, but I was the kind of academic one in the family, I suppose. And I think what happened is I had the opportunity to go to the school that I went to. It was a kind of scholarship entry. And so my parents seized the opportunity, really, oh. to, send me, to send me there. And that, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, completely mm. understandable. Yeah. And were, were you a vegan as a teenager? When did that interest start? Well, that, again, as, as all the greatest things happen, it happened completely by accident <laughs> through a friend of mine who, well, actually, I mean, whatever you might think of Krishna devotees, I had a friend who was a Krishna devotee. And so I was introduced to the idea of vegetarianism and compassionate eating when I was in my teens. And it was one of those moments that I just, you know, once I'd thought about compassionate eating and thought about what we were doing eating animals it was a moment's realization that I couldn't go back from so I gave up eating meat on the spot and that was it I haven't since and that was a long time ago now yeah but going vegan is quite extreme because I, I kind of went through the same thing in my early 20s it was when I went out to the country one day and, and I saw some animals and everything and I came back and thought you know I, I don't feel comfortable eating them but I became vegetarian rather than vegan I guess the vegan thing was was from the Krishna idea well the Krishna's are vegetarian actually and they have a whole it's part of the hindu philosophy was to do with like they eat dairy products but they treat their cows very well you know it's yeah. they have a steak for cow but um, i mean certainly cows are not treated very well in this country no. you know and factory farming is a massive thing and i think if you're truly into this idea of compassionate eating you do have to eliminate certainly factory farmed animal products as well because mm. they're part of that whole chain of factory farming Mm-hmm. Lou, just want to ask you, when you say compassionate eating, it's something that doesn't really get said a lot. In fact, this is probably the first time I've heard anyone say this, but when you say compassionate eating, do you mean things like uh, stop eating meat, uh, rewilding and stop waste? Is that how you look at compassionate eating? Is that where you're coming from? Well, I think the other things you've mentioned are a kind of version of that further along the line, maybe. But mm. the, the idea is, um, it's an, and it goes with yoga and it's the idea of not harming, you know, just yeah. eating in a way that doesn't harm other beings. And the, the next level is, yeah, you're right, not harming the planet, very much being in harm, harmony with the planet. I guess a lot of this stuff does come from the kind of Hindu philosophy because yeah. you have these three, you know, sattva. You know, sattva is the middle way and it's the way of peace and being gentle and in harmony with everything. And I think that's very much where this is best placed. And, it's kind of being truly conscious of our impact on everything around us at all times. And what about your friends? Do you find that you have to meet in the middle sometimes when people don't understand about veganism? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, honestly, when I first took these decisions, I was completely evangelical about it and wanted to change the world. But I've sort of made my peace with all that now. And I think everybody now is on the spectrum. Most people I know, whether they are vegan, vegetarian or omnivore or, or whatever, they are eating a lot less meat. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that people will all continue along that spectrum. They may never get to being fully vegan and, and that's fine. You know, I think it's all about taking steps to make things better. Obviously, I would prefer it if everybody was vegan, but that is quite an unrealistic expectation. Yeah, the way I think, though, I mean, okay, my friends, my friends know me uh, cooking, basically. So I'm known for cooking. And that, to me, is the best way to win people over. It's just to produce really amazing vegan food that tastes fantastic. And you'll win far more people to the vegan movement that way than bludgeoning them, you know, and giving them (laughs) unhelpful advice about what they should be doing with their lives. I think that's true. And it's Mm. much easier. I mean, I know it's much easier now just being vegetarian because there's much more options. I remember in the 80s, 
it was all kind of make it up as you got. You had a salad, or you, yeah. you know, and well, an omelette in my case, not in yours. And that was what I remember having a friend who was vegan back then, and thinking, how do you eat? Because there was just nothing. You really had to cook every everything from scratch, actually. But being vegetarian was slightly easier, I guess. But being vegan, I thought was terribly hard. And then my daughter became vegan a few years ago, but it has got a lot easier. You know, there's a lot more in the supermarkets actually that you can buy. Oh, it's definitely got easier. I mean, I was joke that the reason I started a vegan restaurant is because I spent 35 years trying to find a decent vegan meal in a restaurant yeah. and didn't manage it. So, <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, yeah, you're talking about I don't know what age you're. They're similar age to me, but honestly, in the old days, like vegan was the vegetarian option with the cheese taken off. And yes, you know, yeah, no, that's they, absolutely right. Yeah, they didn't bother <laughs> to put anything in to sort of make up for that flavour that they were taking out. So I do. Think Think things have improved dramatically now i do think restaurants still have a way to go non-vegan restaurants in terms of working a little bit more with the ingredients to make something that is better rather than just a token offering mm-hmm. um, i'm seeing more and more chefs who go vegan themselves have this realization with compassionate eating and are turning their restaurants vegan and, and i think that's amazing we've got some amazing chefs now really well-known chefs who are starting to kind of get into the vegan cooking yeah. and then yeah. of course the supermarkets yeah definitely i mean you know, there is an issue, I think, around price, especially in the supermarkets. And I think if we can achieve parity between vegan and non-vegan options, I think you'll you'll make greater headway. Yeah. I mean, it should be cheaper, actually, it, you'd it think. Is, it is cheaper, but the problem is... I have this discussion a lot with people. The problem is that people are going for, like, meat substitutes, and it's all yeah. highly processed. Yeah. So if you go to the next level, which is the compassion towards the earth, these products are not really contributing towards that. They're still massively resource-intensive in terms of their production. They're all plastic-wrapped and they're expensive compared to their meat counterparts. Now, if you are into lentils, which I very much am into, you know, you can feed a family of four on one cup of lentils, Mm -hmm. um, which is going to cost you about a pound. And so it is very easy to eat vegan and it's very cheap, but it depends how you do it. Now, starting up Stem and Glory, where did that idea come from? And it's a great name as well. I love the name Stem and Glory. (laughs) How did this all come about? And were you working in kitchens before? Well, Stem and Glory is another happy accident, the name, I mean, it just literally was, um, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, I had another business and within that business, I've been trying to make a, a vegan cafe work right since the very beginning. And then finally, an opportunity came to open a full blown restaurant in Cambridge. So we just grabbed it, really. And we knew we wanted a name that was something and something. <laughs> so there was a big list of words which we were passing around between myself, a designer friend of mine and my husband. <laughs> and we'd all put in words that we liked the sound of. And I read down the list, there was the word stem and underneath it was the word glory. And I was like, that's it. That's the Brilliant. one. Everyone just loved it. So it was a complete winner right from the word go. So in answer to your question about kitchens, no, I have no hospitality experience other than working in restaurants when I was young and my own personal love of cooking. But um, we've always worked with chefs at Stem and Glory, so we've had some very good chefs who've impacted on the business over the years. We have a very good executive chef now, is someone that we get on very well with, so he's evolved with us over the last two years and hopefully will stay with us forward into the future. But, you know, everyone who's been a part of Stem and Glory since the beginning, there's some dishes on our menu who've been there since the very beginning. Kimchi pancakes, for example, was one of our very early chefs who put that on the menu and it's still there. So yeah, just things just evolve. Yeah, and yeah. people you meet always have an effect on you and things grow. And Lou, do you find then from when you started, which was it 2016 or 18 you started your... Well, the very first Stem and Glory um, was right at the end of 2016. And yeah. then one, one year later, we moved 
to King Street in Cambridge, so we took on another site in Cambridge. And then at 2019, we opened our flagship in London. And then in June this year, we've moved to a much bigger site in Cambridge. And you've so, done that through crowdfunding <laughs> as yeah. well. Tell us about that. That's really interesting. So through crowdfunding and through lockdowns as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Opened it, well, we opened our new site in Cambridge literally as we came out of the lockdowns. So that was an interesting experience. But I mean, crowdfunding, I mean, we launched our first restaurant crowdfunding and we raised for our flagship in London crowdfunding it was a very successful campaign we're about to do another raise Covid permitting because <laughs> we've now secured another site in London which is going to be our biggest site to date so then we'll have two in London and one in Cambridge but um, yeah crowdfunding is interesting <laughs> exciting terrifying in equal measure but you know we've had fantastic support um, especially from the Cambridge community because obviously this is where we started. We now have over a thousand individuals who've invested in our business which is just amazing. And I believe when you did the first crowdfunding you raised all of the money or enough money in what was it, a few days. It was, it was really quick. Well the first one was very quick, it was a slightly different version. The one, the one we did which was huge was in March 2018 for our flagship site. So. Mm. You know, it is amazing what you do, but you do all the work beforehand with crowdfunding. It may it comes out of nowhere when you go live, but you've done a lot of work first. It's not a random accident. You know, it's like with yeah. all these things. If you're thinking about crowdfunding, don't rely on the platforms to do the work for you, is my advice. You have to do the work yourself. So we had a lot of support anyway, built up a lot of incitement. And yeah, you set a target. We hit our target in five hours of going live. <laughs> And went on, to al- went on to yeah. almost d- double it. But you see, before we went live, we were, we were very well along the, the path already. So yeah. it's, it's kind of part art, part science, crowdfunding. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. So, Lou, do you find being a woman has made it harder in your business or actually you don't think anything about it? It's, it's not been an issue at all. I don't think about it really, I think is my general take on everything. I actually listened to a very good interview recently with Anne Bowden, I don't know if you know who she is, she's the founder of Starling Bank. She's um, a very interesting individual, she spent most of her life in corporates and then at the age of 54 she decided she was going to give it all up and open Starling Bank and she (laughs) said, and I really resonate with this, is that people have often underestimated her and it's really at their peril (laughs) and I think (laughs) I think I feel like that too. It doesn't bother me if people underestimate because it doesn't it doesn't knock me off my path, you know, and I think women can get underestimated sometimes. But I think the important thing is just don't give that any energy, you know, you just gotta focus on what you do and don't think about that stuff too much. I mean I've I've received loads of support and mentorship from both men and women all through my business life and those are the things to focus on. You know, I think as well, and this is why I especially like the Anne Bowden example, because she's she's, uh, older than me even, and she was 56 actually when she launched Starling Bank, is that if you focus on these these things, they will sort of knock you off your path and you're absolutely, you owe it to the world to, to, to do what it is you have to do. We have this conversation often with guests actually, and I think women seem to get hurt, they seem to get offended more readily than men do and I think I don't know they seem more vulnerable to self-doubt that that's that's a conversation that we often have it's (laughs) self-doubt but it it sounds like you don't suffer from that which is great you know it sounds like you just you just keep going no I I I definitely suffer from I I did something an interview recently we're talking about imposter syndrome yeah I mean and as well being older is the point I was trying to make so I'm not sure I actually made the point but being older is also a thing um, and I think that's the same for men and women so being an older woman you've got got it all coming from all sides but I do think 
the imposter syndrome is an interesting one and self-doubt. I think that self-doubt is an important part of the process, really. I think, you know, you, you have to feel the fear and feel the doubt and then know, is that just small? Is it big? Is it telling you this or is it telling you that? And mm -hmm. I think with imposter syndrome, I mean, there's different types of leadership, you know, and a lot of what we're taught to defer towards is this kind of extrovert male type of leader, Richard Branson style, you know, but mm. honestly, there are many different types of leadership and introvert leadership, which has a healthy measure of self-doubt and this imposter syndrome is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, in many ways, it's a good thing because you listen more, you facilitate your, your other team members more, you know, you give them more responsibility, you don't take it all yourself. Yeah. Mm. Do you have mentors, Lou? <laughs> Do you find that you can, uh, you mentioned that you've had some great support from men and women through the time. Is there someone in particular that, that you've always sought for advice or you've looked up to, you never had any contact with them, but you have looked to them and thought, well, if they can do it, I can certainly do it. Or can you pick anybody that you think, he or she did it for me that's why I'm here I think when you like with the Ambonin example you sort of like it, it, it opens up stuff inside you like for me that realization that she had that same thing as me it frees you from that really you know you stops you from worrying about it because you know you're not the only person that has that or does yeah. that yeah. But, but regarding other mentors I mean people are everywhere inspiring people I mean okay so the first crowdfund that I did the big crowdfund I I, you, I studied it, you know, I studied various people and I was very inspired. Funnily enough, actually, <laughs> Anne Starling's previous business partner who went on to start Monzo Bank. So you've got Anne Bowden did um, Starling Bank and then you've got this other guy who was much younger than her, a young guy, started Monzo. But the background story of that is that he left her company and he took all her employees and all her directors <gasps> with him to do it. And I didn't know this at the time, but now she has a very balanced view on all that. But anyway, Monzo did the most impressive crowdfund of all time. They basically nailed a million pounds in 96 seconds. <gasps> so I studied really hard how they did this. And I took inspiration from that. And so inspiration is everywhere. Really, it's everywhere. I mean, I've taken inspiration from aforementioned Richard Branson, for example, you know, even though completely different type of person as I, li I like a lot of the way he approaches business and in fact the person who was interviewing Ann Bowden I can't remember his name but he does a thing called the diary of a CEO and I heard him speak recently and he's incredibly spiritual and profound individual you know millionaires on Dragon's Den now but Stephen Bartlett sorry that's his name yeah I love his business approach which is much more spiritual you know it's not technical at all he feels his way into all situations and actually I think that's the new way that is coming on us and I think more people are getting in touch with like business as a an art you know rather than mm. a set of frameworks that you stick to and this is it you know that sounds much more interesting people like that actually Lou I now, have mentors locally as well sorry I, I work closely with a couple of people involved with the business school in Cambridge and generally people approach you you know you you meet them they like what you do you meet up and it's all very informal in terms of mentorship I think which is the best way actually I think yeah. that's really nice I believe that STEM and Glory are committed to being carbon negative by the end yeah. of 2021, which yes. is now, yes. <laughs> and, and well on the way to hitting the target. How's that going? Well, another random thing that came along. So I, we have a business in London, as you probably know, and I've mentioned it several times anyway, and we took part in a programme called Better Futures, which is sponsored by the Lord Mayor's Office in London, so it's a funded programme. And what it does is it takes you your business through all the different steps to basically calculate your emissions. So you mm -hmm. go across everything. So 
as a result of being on that program, at the end of the program, we had emissions for the day-to-day, -day, we had emissions for the build of our restaurants and all our kind of reduction mitigation strategies and then also because obviously at the end of all your reduction you will end up with something you need to offset and then yeah. it's about working with the right offset partners you know it's not just about planting trees there is a lot more going on with offset than just that so it's kind of complex um so yeah during that program sort of identified all of that stuff we've since got more detail and we're getting more granular with calculations and setting targets and trying to get towards as close to zero waste as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, by the end of the year, <laughs> offset. And then, of course, monitoring on a, on a monthly, annual basis. You have to commit to reduction targets as well as part of these programs. You can't just pay your way out of it. No. So th there is a bit of a trend for that, mind you, but you, know, yes. you, you can't just go and buy a bit of land and uh, <laughs> allow it to rewild, which some corporates are doing, which I think you mentioned rewilding, aren't it? Rewilding is also not the answer, but... But no, it's it's interesting times, and you know we're already on renewable energy, which means we're we're doing much better than a lot of restaurants, for example, and obviously serving plant-based food, we're already a lot less. So I suppose we've got a lot less to deal with than a lot of other businesses. Brilliant. I mean, well done. That's absolutely excellent. Yeah. Do, do you find that the staff? who come and work for you have a similar mindset? I mean, you're not going to find them at the back munching a, a McDonald's, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I couldn't honestly hand on heart say that's never happened because I don't know. They would, definitely keep, they would definitely keep it away from me. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, we obviously vegans do gravitate towards working in a vegan restaurant, but I think if you allowed your talent pool to be exclusively vegan, you would be limiting your own you know your own talent I mean we've had people come and work for us and turn vegan within a very short space of time that can mm. happen too mm. you know I mean most people who work for us by just being in the place they're generally a little bit more conscious of what they eat um, and a bit more conscious about the planet and the harm that we do and we do and try and engage our teams as much as possible in our strategies towards emissions reduction and, and so on but, you know, everyone's a work in progress. And, uh, yeah, hopefully nobody eating McDonald's by the back door yet. <laughs> I'm fascinated, actually. I, I see lots of pictures of you and you do look amazingly modern in your dress. You look very good. Has <laughs> that always been something that you feel very important for you, that you wear what you want to wear? And even in the restaurant when you're working there, do you find that you have to combine lovely clothes with a practicality about it as well? <laughs> You've found my guilty secret. <laughs> I'm surprised you spotted that. Listen, I, I, I love fashion, I suppose. I've always Good for loved you. it. Um, I love, <laughs> should I say this on the radio? G-Star is a clothing label. Ah. I, love, I love their clothes, but I also like their ethical and environmental starts as well. They're, they were like one of the first big fashion houses to start making stuff out of sustainable recycled products. But yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't really dress in, in what would be described as traditionally female clothes anyway. So I think pretty much everything I wear is good for work and good out of work. And I pretty much look the same in both contexts. So yeah. I don't really but, have any work when I work, but I don't really work in the restaurant anyway. I think that's important to know. I will get on the floor, and when we open the restaurants as well, when you when you run a business in the beginning of something new, it's a very high task. You know, you have mm. to get in there, you have to see what's going on to be able yeah. to sort out how to do it properly. Um, and it's it's good work to be there at the beginning. It's hard work, but yeah. it, it's it's a good feeling, and it's good for the team to see you there as well. 
but yeah, I don't I don't dress differently on on and off. Fashion and expression. Well, it's funny actually that we have a story. Our our manager in Cambridge is a a, a fabulous individual. She has a Mohican, short Mohican. She's, she looks fantastic and she colours it all different colours all the time. Sometimes it's blue, other times it's pink and she had loads of piercings. And someone once said to her, don't your employers worry about your piercings? Don't they mind about your piercings? And she said, no, they positively encourage it. <laughs> so I'm proud, I'm proud to be that sort of an employer, really, where our employees, they, you know, obviously you have to work within the... Uh, hygiene thing but obviously beyond that yeah, yeah. we're totally up for self-expression of course it's the <laughs> thing that, it's what That's makes wonderful. the world go round isn't it it is absolutely fabulous. fabulous so you have two restaurants in Cambridge and now shortly we'll have two in London are you going to expand and go <laughs> nationwide well we have one in Cambridge now actually so we've amalgamated into one much bigger ah, site so okay. one in Cambridge one in London and second coming in London we we do have plans to expand it was always the plan I mean the new Cambridge site we opened in June and the third site which will be at London's Broadgate both of those were sites that we had viewed before the first lockdown so obviously there's been a massive pause and now here we are I mean it's yeah I mean, it's more than two years since I first viewed it and now, yeah, we're very much hoping that we can resume our expansion plan. You know, we're not going to flood the country with 550 outlets or anything like that, but definitely strategic cities, especially, I think, in the UK. And we've actually also been approached to franchise into Europe, which is incredibly exciting. <gasps> wow, yes. yes. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Running any business, it's hard work, isn't it, as well as giving you so much pleasure and gratification and doing something that you absolutely believe in. But running a business, for anyone thinking about running a business, is hard work, isn't it? <laughs> you won't ever get me saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because if it's hard work, then it's going to wear you down, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I'm fortunate. I have good people around me. Um, my husband is my kind of rock, really. He works on the business and he's very much a detail person. You know, he's very good with people. He's very good with detail and numbers. And I think... I think if you're like me, I have a much more kind of restless type of energy and I'm very much about growth and expansion. And I think for, for that sort of personality, you need someone like my husband, you know, who's the kind of rock yeah, um, behind, behind the scenes. True. Exactly. And so in that regard, I don't ever experience the business as hard work. I mean, there's high intensity and there's high task. But if you are going to do business, this is probably my most significant piece of business advice to anyone. It's like you've got to power your vision with your you know you've got to put energy into it that fulfills a vision of some type and that will carry you through because if you have that you're working towards a vision nothing will stop you yeah. yes it certainly Very feels well more like a passion than a yeah. business to me stem and glory no, is there anything the coming up well we've got a book coming out we Aha. are Ooh. we in the last month or two we've got a very small book as our first book it's 56 pages it's classic stem and glory recipes so they're all the recipes that you've eaten really? in our restaurant yes oh. we're already starting now um, a much bigger publishing project loosely around british grown produce which is one of my biggest passions at the moment about championing you know uk agriculture and british grown produce and there's some fantastic products being grown here now so our next book is going to be a much more significant affair very focused on british grown sort of low carbon cuisine Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very, very much, Louise Pammer Masterton, for joining us today. It's been really interesting chatting to you. And you've got so much energy and passion for that business. I love talking to people that have got passion for what they do. It's fabulous. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Very well. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure.